The High Power Hangout is a podcast that promotes and supports firearms, sports, and firearm safety. I do not support crime, negligence, illegal actions, or misuse of firearms. Always treat every firearm as if it was loaded, point them in a safe direction, and never put your finger on the trigger until you intend to safely fire and always be aware of what's behind your target. Discussions on this podcast, write-ins, or guest appearances are not responsible for your actions or inactions as a result of content covered in the show. Do not use reloading data from the show without working up from a considerably more conservative charge and solely working up until a safe load can be obtained. Welcome, everybody. We are back with another episode of the High Power Hangout. I'm JP, and today is Monday, September 4th, 2023, and I'm now realizing it's been a while since I brushed my teeth. I've had some real fun since the last episode. A few matches, some practice, some hipster-level introspection, and a lot of book reading. A lot. On the docket for today are a few housekeeping items, a results rundown from two of my most recent matches with a quick technique talk blended in there for some match rifle positions that I've been dangerously working on, a brief load lounge to discuss some Starline brass prep, a quick visit over to the High Power Hangout Mythbusters studio, and a shooter shoutout that comes from a neighboring state. Also, if you're just joining us here at the podcast and listening to this episode wondering, what the heck I'm talking about? Remember, this is a sequential sort of saga, so I'd recommend either going back to the start and blasting through all the episodes at like 1.5 speed, or if you don't have any time for that, which I understand, maybe just hop back a few episodes and get caught up. You're probably not missing much anyway. Nothing prolific has ever come out of my mouth since I was like eight years old. So first up, how about those housekeeping items? I need to correct myself because I did not, in fact, bring a match rifle to a service rifle match. I actually misread the program and brought my match rifle to a high power match. The last time I shot at this range was a few years ago. In fact, I was actually still shooting my M1 National Match Grand and still learning how to high power. I remember that specific match to be a service rifle match and I was totally incorrect here, so... I was one of two match rifle shooters here, and we'll get to that a little bit later. Also, as a side note, I tried to watch F1 racing recently, and I just couldn't handle it. I gave it my best, but it just did not stick. Don't get me wrong, I love most things Britain and most things European, in all honesty, but it just seemed to be a little too bleh. Everything seems like it's built around Team Red Bull and Team McLaren and the top two or three guys driving the cars. I mean, come on. Whether they win or don't win, they get a majority of the commentary. It's almost like they've paid off these announcers. These guys could have come in ninth place, and the announcers would drag on about how they didn't win, and they'd forget to mention the unbelievable feat that the winner actually accomplished. Really? Do we really care that Lewis Hamilton finished 19th and that his team is still winning in the point standings by a million points, or that Team Red Bull only finished 4th? Listen, Stanley, go get Lewis Hamilton and let's interview him for the next week and a half about his monumental 4th place finish. Never mind the winner, now get along. I mean, come on, imagine the CMP newsletter talking about Brandon Green's 19th place finish in a regional match and not mentioning the top three shooters. That's F1 for you. And no, that 19th place finish is not real. It's hypothetical. I just made it up to make my point. On to the next follow-up topic, carbon buildup in the bore. Remember the last episode I mentioned a strategy of using a lighter load to season the barrel to prevent fire cracking and large amounts of carbon buildup? It seems to actually be working a little. Now there's a chance that I just don't have a barrel that was prone to fire cracking anyway, so I'm not calling this strategy as sound. But after a few hundred rounds down the barrel, I found that it has certainly fouled up like I expected it to, 
and it cleaned out really nicely, but the fire cracking seems to be missing, and I don't feel any of those tight spots as I bring the nylon brush backwards through the bore as I would with my other service rifles. Also, I came across a cleaning product called Iaso Bore Cleaner. It comes in a little white tube and looks like toothpaste, but it does not, in fact, taste like toothpaste. I read about this one on the National Match forum and noticed some folks have been using it with a mixture of Freeall to clean out their bores instead of JB and Croil. Come on, by now you know what I'm about to say. So I got some from the old Amazons and it was delivered the next day. I also did a quick Google search on this stuff because I just didn't know a lot of, I didn't know anything about it actually, and considering it was an abrasive paste, I wanted to make sure there weren't any words to the wise floating around. Thanks sweet Caroline that I did because there were heads up from people all over the place. Some people claim that after throwing it on a patch with a jag and running it up and down the barrel a bunch, they ruin the lappings of their bore. I suppose that could be. If it's really abrasive and you put the abrasive between a tight jag with a patch and the bore, it could probably lap metal. Almost literally between rock and a hard place. The same people warned against that and instead suggested putting it on a very loose nylon brush without a patch wrapped around it and stroking the bore that way. Most others agreed and said it was the most conservative way to do this using IOSO. So, heeding that warning, I went to work, very cautiously. I found my free all and sprayed it on the brush. I took a pea-sized amount of IOSO and spread it between my index finger and the thumb. I tried to spread it evenly around the really, really, really loose brush that I had. Now, when I say loose, I mean really loose. It was worn so bad that I could run it through the bore by only using my index finger and my thumb holding the cleaning rod. It was that loose. So now I have this oily brush with some IOSO, and I moved it into the first few, maybe three to six inches of the bore, and went back and forth for about ten strokes. I removed the brush from the cleaning rod and drove a brush full of hoppies down the bore to push out some of that crud and abrasive, and then I ran a patch on a jag with hoppies. After looking down the bore with the borescope, it was incredible what that I also did in just a few short amount of strokes. I could tell that it was working. So I repeated the process one more time, running the loose brush of Iaso throughout the entire bore for maybe 10 strokes total, and then I cleared it out with the hoppies again, and holy hot mama Sadie, it was sparkling clean. I mean sparkling, not a glimmer of black carbon or copper. 1970s disco ball, baby. It was spotless. I felt like I had just discovered fire. Great, but dangerous. My 20 or so strokes on an extremely loose brush removed everything. The power of Iaso is alarmingly magical. It also works well with removing carbon rink, but I again can't recommend that because of the potential to do some permanent harm to the throat. Here's my warning to you listeners. If you decide to try it out and clear a heavily fouled up bore, use an extremely loose brush and use extreme caution. This stuff is abrasive and, in my opinion, could probably damage your bore permanently if you're not careful. Do not go nuclear on your barrel with this. I also bore cleaner is on a totally different level than JB and Croyle. Do you like beer and hot dogs on a Saturday afternoon at the baseball game? Okay, because this stuff is a full bottle of wild turkey and a pack of unfiltered cigarettes on a Tuesday at 2 a.m. It's gonna get you and you're gonna be feeling it later. 
Let's just say I put this back in the locked closet that has the warning only for use in case of emergency. All right, Banks is giving me the international sign for Wrap It Up, so let's dive into a hybrid blend of a results rundown and technique talk, as well as give some kudos to some seriously good shooting. Okay, so here's the deal. Since the last episode, I've had a chance to shoot two matches, one match rifle and one service rifle, so let's start from the beginning. The first match was at a nice little cozy spot up on the southern border of Wisconsin at a range known as Conservation Club of Kenosha County in the town of Bristol. This range is one of the more unique places that I can say I've had the pleasure of shooting at. It's a 200-yard reduced range that features targets that are very elevated. You will have to make NPA changes to shoot here, and they won't be minimal. It's a walk and paste, and they run it in a fairly interesting manner. Relay 1 shoots the entire 50-round match, and then Relay 2 fires. Why? Because of the firing line setup. They shoot in individual stalls. Each shooting position has wooden frames with chicken wire between them to prevent brass from flying everywhere, with a walkway behind the firing line. The firing line is cement with a covered roof, and it has a closed backside, so there's very little wind that's felt on the firing line under most conditions. Each shooter basically stays in their stall for the entire match, and then can leave the range when they're finished, and then Relay 2 goes on to fire. It would be really challenging uh, logistically to have everybody move off the line and then let the other Relay move in because of the width of the rear walkway. It's a pretty crowded area. Some other oddities of the range, it's multi-use. So, while the high-power match is going on, there's other shooters on the 100-yard small-bore range blasting away at little aspirins, there's muzzle loaders getting zeroed for hunting season, and whatever else you can think of firing at the same time. When us high-power folks are between matches and stages, the whole firing line shuts down to accommodate us. Finally, some respect. They also shoot completely backward. Two siders in prone and then slow prone, then rapid prone, then rapid sit, and you finish with offhand. You only get two siders for the entire day, so you better know your zeros if you're hoping not to lose points. And I gotta throw a little shade here for dramatic effect, but if you maybe have forgotten the course of fire, don't worry. At least three people will come by and tell you how it goes and how high power works, even if you've told them that you know the course of fire here, and have shot here before. Ugh. After each stage of firing, a few random shooters will go down range and peel off the target faces while the other shooters staple on new faces. The targets are taken behind the firing line to be scored by other people. Those are put into the master score sheet for the day and the match moves on. That part is actually pretty efficient, I'll give them that. Did I mention that you only get two ciders? I think I did, because that part was really annoying to me. If I had my service rifle, whatever, no big deal. But, I had just worked on some new positions for the match rifle that included new body positioning, sling settings, canting, the whole works. Canting induces some serious windage requirements to stay on target. Cant towards 1 or 2 o'clock, you're going to need some left windage to stay on point, and verse visa. It's not gonna take you out of the black, but it's something to be aware of. Now, I knew there weren't any ciders ahead of time, so I wasn't pouting about it, but 
I had to take some educated guesses to predict how much windage I'm going to need for my cant. Also, considering I was working on new positions that hadn't been range tested yet, I could not realistically have high expectations for my performance here, but I was hopeful. Now, right before the match, I asked my buddy Craig if this felt like it was going to be a 500 kind of day for him. And with so much poise and determination, he said, yeah, it does. And at that moment, I realized it no longer felt like a 500 kind of day for me. Zoop, sucked the wind straight out of my sails. Well, the match began and I was suddenly sending several shiny Sierra 77 seconds somewhere southbound and the match went on without a hitch. Good where I anticipated and yet showed a lack of points where I was kind of unsure on how the new technique would come out. A lack of practice definitely makes a lack of perfect, so it was a 491 with 20x for the day. I can't be mad about that considering rapid sitting made me feel like I pulled my left hamstring. Which brings me to the next day where I realized I had pulled my left hamstring. That dog was barking. It hurt to stand up, to sit down, to walk around, and that's most of my job. And that was kind of funny at work the next day. My coworker thought it was hilarious, considering he was a marathon running MMA coach in his free time and he was the same age as me. He asked me what my lifting routine was, which I responded with a blank stare and probably a hint of drool. Sorry, bud, no sick gains for me at the gym. Which brings us to the technique part of today's episode. If this is your first episode or two, traditionally my focus is on service rifle, but after experiencing a deep hate part of the love and hate relationship, I decided that it was time to maybe break my focus on service rifle, take a step back, and try to see if I could learn something from learning to shoot a match rifle for a bit. I'm hoping some of this will carry over from the short deviation and maybe help cure some of these service rifle woes. And honestly, it already has, and we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Let's look at this match rifle expedition from a more top-down viewpoint. Rewind to last year, new Elysio, no experience, improper sights, no starting point for a sling or buttstock settings, positions, you name it, I had it. Basically, if it wasn't service rifle, it was totally new to me. Not a good starting point. Fast forward to August, which is last month. New scope, appropriate cartridge, better understanding of sling settings and match rifle positions, and some free time to read about what the professionals do. I decided that my only experience with setting up a rifle was from Nancy Tompkins' long-range prone shooting book. It's a great book, but not really helpful for all the positions. Then I discovered a book by David Tubb called High Power Rifle. I figured it would be another resource to help lock down a better understanding for the match rifle as a whole. Now, I finished the book, I highlighted the bejesus out of it, and then I read the front matter and found out that it was written in 1990. I was three years old which explains a lot of the suggestions surrounding iron sights, exposed bolt handles during rapids, and shooting rapids from standing. It was a different time. However, I will say that I learned a lot in a matter of a week. And yes, I'm a slow reader, which, whatever, but the book was mind-blowing. Relatively, I guess, it's mind-blowing because my knowledge level and experience is so low on the sport. Keep in mind that this book was written from 1990, so I'm sure he's changed things up a bit since then, so most of my next few minutes is going to be based on my experiences from that book. 
The real meat and potatoes that I pulled out from that book related to positions, buttstock setups, and canting. Yes, canting. I remember telling myself, and maybe even on the podcast at one point or another in my career, do not can't. Someone much wiser than me once said, you can't can't. That was so ingrained in my brain that I refused to even consider it. But after reading this book by Tubb, I decided to admit to myself that maybe I was wrong and I should give it a shot. I will admit it's much more comfortable canting in some situations and can be overcome with some wind clicks. Tub cants in all positions, counterclockwise and offhand and prone, and clockwise and sitting. In fact, he mentions setting his rear and front iron sights offset by 7 degrees clockwise so that they're fairly even with the horizon during offhand and prone. In rapid sit, he's canted clockwise quite a bit. He mentioned needing almost a minute and a half of left windage for sitting. So here I am today, the first to admit to myself that I was wrong. And secondly, to let you know that you can can't. You can be an Americant. It's fine. It requires a new no-win zero setting, and the can't must be consistent each time. Otherwise, that no-win zero is just completely out the door. It's a little more risky in leg matches with no ciders, but if you have ciders or you have a lot of experience with it in practice, you're probably good to go in most situations without ciders after a while. There were two big position changes that I've made with a match rifle, one that carried successfully over to service rifle. Let's start off with offhand. He recommended putting the butt pad way, way lower on the rail, which raises the rifle towards your head rather than dropping your head down to the rifle and canting the rifle towards your head as well, letting the weight of the rifle center over your body mass rather than toward your belly or the card in front of you. What's the reasoning here? Well, by bringing the rifle toward your head and reducing your head's tilting movement between shots, it'll increase your balance. This one I agree with immediately, but never really thought about it and put it to practice. I studied six months of aerospace physiology in college and completely understand what he's actually getting at here. Those little tubes in your inner ears can be your friends or your enemies, and they're extremely unforgiving. The vestibular system is the body system that senses movement and really gives the brain a sense of balance. There's a few different tubes arranged in a circular pattern that lie in different axes. Each tube contains some fluid, some little hairs for sensing, and some small crystals for god knows why. As the head tilts one way or another, the fluid shifts around in those tubes due to gravity. When fluid moves across those sensing hairs, the brain picks up the change and perceives this as motion. If you spin around in your little office chair really fast and then stop, you'll know exactly what that feels like. Because those little hairs are now covered in fluid, they take a few moments to bend back to their original position, and that's the feeling of getting oriented from when you were dizzy with your surroundings. A weird thing happens with them, though. The vestibular system is there in primary to sense motion and change. Once the system settles down, the brain no longer senses motion. So if you were in a spinny chair in a dark room with no sounds, and you were spinning at the same rate for a long period of time, eventually you just feel like you weren't spinning. But once the motion stopped, you'd get dizzier than a drunken cat. 
This relates to what Tubb is talking about. If you have to tilt your head to the rifle, which most service rifle shooters do, you're going to lose a bit of balance until the vestibular system calms down. It might be a few seconds, it may be 10 or 20. Everybody's totally different. It also may affect you very little, but it's still something, and it's something that should be eliminated if at all possible. I definitely lean my head over for service rifle in offhand. It's not much, but it's something, and I think it's why a lot of modern day shooters keep the butt of the rifle high in their shoulders for standing, and some shooters even cant the rifle toward their head. It's worth considering if you're looking at changing things up, and honestly, I may have to after learning about this. The next position we have, rapid sit. With the service rifle, I shoot rapid sit with my legs crossed and close to the body. Some people call it Indian style. I've been battling a horrible pulse lately and some instability that pops its ugly head in to say hi once in a while. Yes, I've tried most things, no they haven't worked, and I'm still on the hunt for the answer. But maybe I've just found it. Tub recommended shooting match rifle with a modified cross ankle position. Here, for you righties, the left leg is mostly forward instead of close to the body, and the right foot sits under the left shin. So, left leg forward, right foot under the left shin. The legs are not crossed at the ankles, but actually you could get into this position by starting there. If you're having trouble picturing this, imagine sitting on your butt, putting both feet far out in front of you, now cross your left ankle over the right. Now bring your right foot back until the foot is under the left shin. That's about where we're at. Now here's the part that I found a little strange. The left elbow itself is not the anchor point. The area just behind your left elbow is, which is toward your armpit about 2 or 3 inches. The actual elbow itself, the corner part, is suspended forward of your left shin. Surprisingly, in all my playing around with it, it did not seem to move my NPA up or down. It stayed fairly well placed. Now the right elbow plants in that knee pocket formed by your right knee. Then wherever the body falls at that point is basically just where the cant is set to. For me, it ended up being around 1245. But, ouch! I am really inflexible when it comes to hamstring stretches. I cannot touch my own toes. Originally, I thought that this was a hamstring issue. When I reach forward to touch my toes, the first thing that stops me is actually a really sharp pain behind my knees. I've recently read that this is not actually a hamstring problem, it's actually a sciatic nerve issue. Great. Not sure if that's 100% what's going on, but I've always thought that that was the part of the hamstring that hurt everybody, but I guess it's not. Oh well. Either way, I grunted through it and tried this position at Bristol, and that's where I found the extreme leg pain and my pulled muscle. So because that didn't work, I decided to take some of this knowledge and go to the range for that thing that nobody ever does but says they do. Practice. I happened to have a day off from work and a whole lot of ammo that I had loaded up throughout the year for practice, for load testing, and matches that I just did not see myself using. In that big backpack full of ammo, I had a mixture of Lake City, Starline, and PMC cases. 
I had CCI 450s and Remington 7.5s and Winchester small rifle primers. I had Vitavori N140, Reloader 15, Hodgson H4895. I had CR69s, CR77s, Hornady 68s, Burger 80.5s. And thankfully, this rifle is just like my dog. It'll eat whatever I give it and turn it into the same color poo. But I was determined to shoot every last round come hell or high water. So I thought about it for a while and I decided that maybe I could do a hybrid position that might work. I stayed with the Indian style sitting position for lack of a better term, but moved my left elbow forward of the knee just past the shin. Originally I had both elbows in both my knee pockets, so this would change really only my left elbow. Man, did that do wonders. I shifted around a bit, I found a good NPA, and I sent some rounds down range. I had minimal pulse, excellent reliability going in and out of positions, and the cant really helped it feel a bit more natural. I fired a few 2x2 two two strings with magazine changes, and I ran the bolts a few times only to find the NPA settling right back where it should be. To simulate a little stress and match time performance, I got out of position, I came out of my jacket, I walked around for a few moments, got right back into the jacket, jumped into position, and fired a string of 10 rounds with the timer going. 100 with 7x. That surprised me. I wanted to try one more thing. I find that both rapid sit and rapid prone with a bolt rifle really feel like trying to run a 100 meter dash barefoot while avoiding a bunch of Legos on the floor. It's chaotic. Most of that feeling is probably just inexperience with it, and seeing the motion in the scope, feeling the pressure of time with bolt manipulation, and what we call FOMO or fear of missing out, when I hear the service rifle guys blasting away on their second magazine while I'm still on my first. So I thought I'd just look the devil in the eye and try to overcome this fear. What's my strategy here? Well, let's load a magazine or two, relax into a good hold, fire the shot, run the bolt like a rapid string, and then stop. Let the rifle settle right back down. Fire another round and run the bolt, and then stop and let it settle back down. Basically, I'm trying to ingrain in my little brain that this chaos is normal and this is just what it looks like. My aim is that it'll help condition me to stop muscling things around after recoil and bolt manipulation in order to kill some of that time pressure. After 10 or 15 rounds of this, I found it almost comforting to see how quickly the rifle settles back down into the 10 and X ring. It's by no means higher level training, but with my style of problems and introspection, I thought that this might help, and it certainly did, or at least I feel like it did. Here's the cool part. I took that sitting position, and I took it into the following match with a service rifle, and it really, really, really helped out. I notice a significant decrease in my pulse and a more stable position that I've been missing out on all summer. But I say this optimistically because it's come up before. If it's worked once, great. The real test is if it works multiple times. So that brings us to the second match in this results rundown. The Illinois Service Rifle Championship. Held only once per year, this match brings out the hardest of holders in the area for a one-on-one -on -one slugfest of glee. This 80-round match is held at Milan, Illinois, which is just a beautiful place to shoot at. Besides the camaraderie and good competition, one of my favorite parts about shooting at Milan is shooting on paper targets. Yes, the electronics would be easier, 
but there's something to be said about shooting a three o'clock seven and not looking at a computer tablet thinking, oh, that's two lines. That means I click the scope eight times to the left. It actually requires a little bit of math and some thinking. Or the grid lines on your data book chart. Whatever. I ruined my own moment here. Next. The other thing that I like is the amount of competition that goes on here. There are some seriously great scores that come out of this match. The state always produces some seriously friendly, intelligent, uh, polite, and encouraging assholes behind the trigger. I feel like I could shoot a rapid score of 200 with 12x, and then the next shooter will say, Hey, great shooting, I'm currently struggling with blah 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 in my rapids, and then boom, 200 with 14x. Okay, you could have at least said hold my beer for entertainment value. For me, not a great day though due to just a lack of practice and enthusiasm and waking up at 3am. You ever do something while you're shooting that just annoys the crap out of yourself because you know you shouldn't do it in the first place? Like shooting when the position feels wrong or breathing all funny during your rapid strings? Last week I heard Ricky Stenhouse Jr. in NASCAR use the term, you know, 16 times in an interview clip. 16. I counted. Not even a full interview, just a clip of an interview. That man really annoys me. Just like snatching the trigger annoys me. A 785 put me in 7th for the day with some issues in standing and at 600. But let's talk about some highlights from the day that I really enjoyed. Number 1. Catching up with friends that I really haven't seen since Perry. Always great. Watching grown-ass men throw acorns at each other and pretend it wasn't them. Uh, let's see, getting to shoot on the same firing point as my friend Larry, and also Jim from Bucksnord in Missouri, who was actually one of my first teammates ever in a service rifle at Talladega a few years back. It was great to cross paths with him. I loved that team that day, but I hated the match. My notes show a 99 in standing, a 100 in sitting, a 95 in rapid prone, and a 179 at 600. And they were in good conditions. Woof. So after the match at the Service Rifle Championship Coronation, Liam, the Prince of Dublin, was crowned the King of Illinois. Congratulations to him and his first place finish. Actually, Liam killed it. Going back to the 600-yard line, he was only one point down. That is some seriously hard holding, my dude. If anybody's curious on how to hold hard like Liam does, it involves a decent amount of monster rehab from the gas station during offhand. Alright, let's get moving here with the dip into the load lounge and talk about some Starline brass prep that I've been laboriously going through, wondering if I'm actually wasting my time. We are back to the load lounge. You can't escape it. One way or another, you're going to have to visit your own load lounge and process all that brass you need for the upcoming season and matches whether you like it or not. A bit of a deviation here, I remember being a young lad in my early 30s just discovering the finer parts of reloading. I lived in an apartment complex by myself, which, gotta be honest here, is pretty great. But I had nearly nothing to my name in the form of reloading equipment. I had just moved from another apartment complex, which had, I don't know, I probably had 50 rounds of 308 for my National Match Grand that my grandfather had loaded up for me. That was actually the same rifle he went distinguished with. His load was Sierra 168s, 
with a Redding powder charge of 36. What did 36 represent? I have no idea. It was an arbitrary setting that he had used for years. I have no clue on the weights. Anyway, when I moved into this apartment complex, I told myself that I'm going to start reloading some stuff. I bought a Hornady M1 tumbler in red, an RCBS rock chucker, a Redding powder drop, an RCBS dive for 308, and a Hornady bench trimmer. That's it. Actually, I had a few C-clamps. Those were necessary because I needed to do uh, reloading somewhat discreetly, so most of this was placed in the original factory boxes and hidden in my closet when I wasn't reloading. Oh, what a time. But that was it. I didn't even have an ammo box for ammo. I actually C-clamped my press to the dining table every time it was time to stuff bullets or resize brass. Horrible idea, by the way. I broke my dining table twice and had more than enough stuck cases because I didn't have enough leverage with the table flexing. Live and learn. Flash forward to overkill mode. And by that I mean today. I've been home for the last 48 hours staring at a box of a thousand Starline brass pieces that was half done. I decided I'd kill some time and start trying to work on those some more, which led me to think... This would make a good load lounge segment, and let's see if we can get some listener feedback here. First off, I feel like I need to mention that I have a feeling that I'm staring at a huge mountain of work ahead of me, which is part of the reason for this segment. Recently, White Oak Armament mentioned they were selling 556 brass from Starline in the form of, oh, 12,000 pieces in one box. You heard that right, 12,000 pieces of brass. That is one big box. 168 pounds to be exact, measuring 17 by 17 by 18. Now that's going to set you back $3,360 plus freight. Not shipping, freight. That being said, it is still cheaper than Starline Direct because Starline limits the amount of brass per order and they're not going to combine shipping for you. Also, this is one lot of brass. Also, it's good brass. Really good, actually. In the middle of recording my last episode, number 25, I had a buddy text me asking if I wanted in on this. And I mean, yeah, right? Kinda. But $3,300 is a lot. Even two ways. And do I need that much brass to begin with? Yeah. I told him, you know, if you find one more, then maybe I'm game. And I didn't think he'd actually respond, but he did. In fact, he found one more to help us out before I was even done recording that episode. So he graciously drove to Carlock, Illinois to the White Oak headquarters and picked up the brass, sorted it by weight, and dropped it off in a nice Amazon box at my place. Well, now what? I mean, it's the prettiest looking box of brass I've ever seen, but staring at it isn't going to do anything worthwhile for me. So now I have it bagged in bags of 500 and they're ready for onboarding to the High Power Incorporated company. Really, though, I want to bring you in on some of the details of this brass and how I get it ready for high power. Currently, I use this brass exclusively for 600-yard ammo in the service rifle. Out of all the brass that I have, it's performed the best and is the most uniform from lot to lot. First, the brass. The Starline 556 brass is different than the 223 brass that they offer. The Starline 223 brass is a bit softer and much thicker. I've sorted this brass and it weighs anywhere from 100.5 grains on up. The 5.56 is said to be more durable, especially in the primer pocket area. That's due to a different annealing process when the brass is formed. It's much 
much more durable. Two years ago, though, I actually split one of these cases vertically along the body. It was about a three-quarter inch split mid-body shooting a high power match. The load was a Sierra 69 grain Match King, 24.5 grains of Varget, and a Remington 7.5 primer. Not an overly aggressive load here. The rapid sit string came out to a 100 with 7x, so it didn't seem to affect anything. After speaking with Starline, they mentioned that they had a bad lot, but had already corrected it and sent me a replacement batch and let me do what I wanted with the brass that I already had. They've reported no problems since then, so I think they've got it figured out. Anyway, moving on to the prep phase. The first thing that I do is I spray some lube on the inside of the case necks and I mandrel each case to get a relatively uniform inside diameter of each case. If you look at the cases as they come from the manufacturer, you're going to see some with some dents or ovals, which I just personally don't like. Setting a uniform ID helps constant neck tension by getting the necks more uniform all the way around. My mandrel is from 21st Century Innovations and is set to 0.222 inches. The mandreling part does not take that much time. I'll run the cases through a corncob tumbler to get the lube off and then sort each case by case weight. What I'm attempting to accomplish here is to divide the cases by weight in order to get more constant pressure from shot to shot. If I have two Starline 556 cases that are arbitrarily 91 grains and 110 grains on the extreme side of things, the 110 grain case is going to generate more pressure than the 91 grain case. That heavier case has the same external dimensions, but the heavier weight means that the internal dimensions are completely different. The more weight of the case means less internal area where the powder sits, which means higher pressure, leading to higher velocities, which leads to shots being off call, usually higher on target. By how much? I have no idea. Go ask a bench rest shooter. Not my thing. If we really want to get technical, the ideal measurement would actually be the volume on the inside of the case by using water. That would give you the most accurate idea of pressure expectations, but that's more of an overall look at brass, maybe between lots or maybe by manufacturers for comparisons rather than case-to-case -case measurements. The proportion of weight to velocity is not really that important to me because I've eliminated that problem with my loading technique, which I'll explain in just a few seconds. So this may sound neurotic, but I weigh each case on the A&D FX120 scale on the one-tenth of a grain setting. This isn't an abnormal process. A lot of good shooters will do this. Some good shooters will stick with it and some abandon it. I'm sticking with it for now. After yesterday's weighing process of a thousand cases, I found them to weigh anywhere between 93.3 grains to 95.5. That's a pretty decent spread across a thousand cases. I mean, it's not Lapua, so it, you just keep that in mind. Remember, I haven't removed any brass from the case at this point, so this is a pretty good indication of internal volume. After they were done and bagged up, I found a majority of them to weigh 94.4 and 94.8 grains. Like a good majority of them, like probably it's several hundred. The average was probably 94.6 if I had to guess. What I do is I take a three foot long strip of tape, I mark off different weights with a pen, and then I sort the brass by just building little columns based on the weight, 
Then I'll take them and toss them into individual Ziploc marked bags with the weights. Now for the overall process, I treat each bag as its own group. They don't get mixed, they don't see the tumbler at the same time, they're just one unit. So the next step is to take it to the Giro trimmer. These pieces normally are under the nominal trim length at this point, so I just set the trimmer to a few thousandths shorter than that and they get some chamfer and deburring action. I seen one batch that was too short for me to comfortably throw on the Duro, so I simply ran them over a Lyman case prep chamfer tool and deburring tool and that seemed to work just fine. I'm just getting some of that ridge off the case mouth, nothing crazy here. The last step, which I'm going to get some flack for, is to uniform the flash holes. I use a Redding flash hole uniformer and, bear with me here, I attach it to a small electronic screwdriver. I give it a quick touch into the flash hole and then I move on to the next case. A few years ago in my early days, I actually tested cases that had been flash holed and some that hadn't. That's a new verb. On target, it's fairly minimal when you look at the groupings. I can't say that I notice an overwhelming difference. But on velocity consistency and SD values, it's definitely there. I was going from high teens and low 20s to more consistent mid-teens and low teens. I adopted the practice back then and I just haven't looked back. A minute ago I mentioned the case weight to velocity spread line, as in, if one case weighs X and one weighs Z, what's the pressure velocity MOA change on target? Well, to me it doesn't matter. What I do is I start with the lowest case weight at the beginning of the season, and throughout the season I'll work my way up to the heaviest cases towards the end of the season. The direction doesn't matter, you could go up or you could go down. But I do this because if the pressure is rising, or following if you go the other direction, it'll be seen over a longer period of time. If someone were to mix heavy and light cases in one string of fire, it's possible to see issues on target. How bad of issues on target? I don't know. I know that there are folks out there that will tell me this is completely unnecessary and a big waste of time, but I'm not convinced. To be honest with you here, I don't have a laser dead center hold like I want. Can I afford to call a mid-ring 10 at 12 o'clock and have a round shoot faster than anticipated and lose a point on elevation because it's in the 9 ring? No, and that's a totally hypothetical scenario. It may or may not be that drastic, but it would create some frustration in chasing zeros caused by my poor ammo. Obviously, there's a good argument here that there would be better time spent learning to hold harder, yes, but with that time that I don't have available anymore, which is, again, very little free time, I could make up for some of that by producing better ammunition. Again, I'm not saying that a one grain difference in case weight is going to cause heartache and panic on target, because it may not. But I don't know what I don't know, so I just stick with my process. Just my two cents on the deal. Your mileage may vary. So that's my process with the new Starline Brass. Currently it's my 600 yard line only brass, but with the addition of 4,000 cases to my existing 2,000 cases, I may just set the Lake Cities aside and completely use it across the course, to be determined after long pondering sessions at 2am in a hotel room. So I'm wondering, am I doing some overkill here? My thought was maybe drop the flash hole reaming for the short line stuff if I go that way and then just keep it for the long line. What do we think? 
Perfect practice makes perfect always. Discipline and technique stops future problems. Or am I really just overdoing it here? Let me know. JP at hphpodcast.com. All right, strap in here. We may ruffle a little feathers. While we were at the CMP Cup match this year, I was talking to a fellow shooter about the podcast. I asked him if he had any on-the-spot ideas that I might throw on the podcast, and he came up with a really neat idea and even had a title ready. I'm suspecting he may have this one preloaded in the chamber already. I was challenged with debunking the big lie, as it's known by Jim Owens. Now, at the time, I had no idea what this big lie was. But my first data book in 2018 or 2019 was from Jim Owens, and it was purchased from Creedmoor Sports. It seemed like their most popular seller, so I picked one up. I was only shooting vintage rifle at the time, and nobody had provided me with a recommendation for a data book, probably because I didn't ask, so I figured that would just be sufficient. At the time, I was fairly new to the sport, and I didn't know much about scoring rings, minutes of angle between scoring rings, and... Heck, I was still shooting my trusty M1, and I had a lot to learn there. Part of the book that I didn't understand was the MOA difference between scoring lines. Prior to owning this book, I had looked at the NRA rulebook to see how far apart the scoring lines were on target, particularly because I was shooting primarily at 200 and 300 yards, and I wanted to know the distance to move the sights if I needed to move them for windage or elevation. It wasn't until my first match using the data book that I realized that the distance grid across the target plot were different in the data book than the distances I had calculated at home. In fact, they were even different compared to the Silver Mountain grid lines that were on our personal tablets. Well, that was confusing. After heading back to the house after the match, I read the forward part of the data book to see if there were any tips or suggestions that supported this or at a minimum explained it. Keep in mind for this next part, I was younger and more impressionable-er. Jim Owens forward stated that although the distances between the rings may be, for example, a half minute of angle, a change to correct for that half minute of angle should only be a quarter minute. Well, I didn't understand that, but I also didn't understand much at this point in my high-powered career. If you haven't figured out yet, I used to be pretty dumb. I'm still dumb, but especially then. Now, that being said, I took it as gospel. Heck, if it was printed in a book and Creedmoor sold it to the public and they never filed it in their fiction category, I mean, come on, any Dewey Decimal fans here? Well, if you watched my high power career as a YouTube video and played it back at 25 times the speed, you'd notice a lot of raised eyebrows and confused looks for a little bit. Well, that's what I get for not questioning the data book for its minute of angle suggestions. Back then, I casted it aside and moved on to a different data book. I switched over to the actual Creedmoor data books, which had been great for taking notes, but then as time went on and my group sizes got smaller, I wanted a data book that had more space in the X ring and 10 ring rather than the 7 and 8 rings. So I switched over to Browning's data book, and I really like their centers. Actually, as an aside, I wish I could use Creedmoor's book with the larger circles. Anyway, getting back on topic here. After a few matches with the Creedmoor books, I realized that the grid lines across the scoring rings were different. Way different. Where Jim Owens had a half minute of angle, Creedmoor had one minute. 
Now that actually matched what the rulebook says should be the MOA difference between scoring rings. So where am I getting with all this chit-chat? Well, the big lie. Okay, before I get to this part, I feel like I need to mention that I tried to contact Jim Owens and talk to him to see if he still believed so strongly in this theory. I searched up and down and couldn't find a phone number or an email address in which to reach him, so I have to say that this is fairly one-sided here. The shooter that suggested this topic mentioned that the big lie was from the Jim Owens book called Side Alignment, Trigger Control, and The Big Lie, which was available at Champion's Choice. He also mentioned it was a fairly easy read, which is good for me because I read at a fourth grade level. I picked up this paperback book from Champion's Choice and I decided to give it a read throughout the rest of the Nationals and get to work on The Big Lie. Thankfully, the book was far easier to read than I expected, and I'll give credit where credit's due. There's a lot of really good information in it for shooters of all experience levels. But the big lie. Man, the big lie. Okay, sorry for the suspense, but here it is in a nutshell. If you have to make a correction on your sights after a shot, you should only make half a correction, not the full value. In other words, if your shot comes up one minute right of call only add a half minute of left windage. Otherwise, it will go out the other side on the next shot. Same goes for elevation, half correction only. Same theory as the old adage, one click for me, one for the gun. Now, I wanted to contact him to see if he still believes in the theory because, in my opinion, it's arguably preposterous. Well, that explains his data book showing a half minute from edge of the 10 ring to the center X at 600 yards. It also explains a lot of my own confusion when I had to rely on that data to give me a good correction. Let's dive into debunking the myth of the big lie. I want to bring up that his book says that in multiple instances, he gave a half wind value call to his shooter for a correction, and it worked perfectly. The next shot was a beautiful X. His shooter was so impressed by his call of only a half correction. You see where I'm going with this here. It worked a handful of times in his book, and everyone who did a full wind correction suddenly went out all the way to the other side. Now I suppose this is possible. No fighting that, because certain conditions will warrant that on occasion, like if there was a wind speed that peak that just let off since the last shot. Certainly possible considering the timeline waiting between the shot, pit service, and the next target coming back up. If that happened to me, I'd be impressed at my own restraint, but probably would have confused myself because the conditions didn't match the wind call. But stating this is the correct wind call under all conditions is hardly helpful to your readers. So let me make my first argument here. Couldn't we argue that he contradicts his own theory in his own book? Prime example here, and forgive my quick math. According to his book, the come-ups from 300-yard line to 600-yard line shots should be 11 minutes of elevation. Why 11 minutes of come-up? Because that's the bullet drop between the two yard lines corrected. At 300, let's say we hypothetically have, it doesn't matter, let's just say 3 minutes of elevation on the rifle. If you did not touch your sights and just kept your 300-yard elevation on, 
Then at 600 yards, the bullet would show up, I don't know, 66 inches or so, give or take. Still with me here? In this book, he claims two separate contradicting solutions. If you follow his big lie theory and you do that practice and you only come up half the correction, you'd be shooting now 33 inches below the X-ring. Well, there goes cider number one. Then you have to make a half correction from there following the theory. So now you're 16 and a half inches low there, cider number two. But you see, we're going to start losing points here because now we're eight inches low. Okay, I think I've made my point there. But he also says that if you're shooting at 600 yards, you need to come up 11 minutes on a standard 308. Wait, what? Wouldn't that put you shooting straight out the top by your own theory? That's what I thought. Come on, you can't preach that a full value corrections are going to put you out the top, but also tell you that you need a full correction between the firing lines. Now, I'm not claiming that everything I say on this podcast is gospel or simply how it's done. And I think I've made that clear by making fun of my own experience and stupidity level and also hopefully getting the point across that while I think it's probably good advice for some people, it's probably not for everybody. And that's what my disclaimer's for. I will say, though, that telling impressionable readers that a half-value win call is how it's done is a little misleading. Here's the reason that I am so stern about this. Just for this podcast, I tried to give myself some definitive proof. The big lie doesn't work. Here's what I was working with. One of my home ranges known for being dead calm in a near-perfect testing condition, my Elysio UMRS in 223 with a Night Force 32 power scope and a fixed bipod to the front handguard with a sandbag on the back to help with stability in the prone position. The rifle was shooting very well that day. I set up a 200-yard target and I had my scope zeroed in and the rifle set up on the bipod for prone, a really solid position. If we follow logic and math, then eight clicks of left or two minutes left should have moved me just a bit beyond the 10 ring at nine o'clock, according to mathematics. With the Jim Owens big lie theory, it should only move my bullet to about halfway between the X ring and the 10 ring. Remember, if we thought about this backwards, if we were going the other way and I called an X, but it went just outside the 10 ring, his theory supports only adding four clicks of right, while mathematics and logic says eight clicks of right. Anyway, here's the result. The shot went about right where I predicted it would, a nine at nine. Actually, it was about a mid-ring nine, which is just outside my expected results, but it definitely was not a mid-ring 10 like the big lie stated. I took another shot, right next to it, and a third just for good luck, and it was touching the second one. So I simulated having three off-call shots due to wind, and now I want to make a center X. Big lie says add one minute right. Math and logic and now experience is saying that two minutes would be better. So I added the one minute right just to test my theory. Nope. Not even a mid-ring 10. By this point, I was actually starting to question my 200-yard non-win zero, but that's besides the point. 
Another shot supported my suspicion and was placed right on top of the mid-ring 10 shot. To close the loop, I fired the last shot on zero wind and it was close to a center X. Okay, maybe a little left, my fault. So we're left with little supporting information toward this theory. Supporting the theory is Jim's vast knowledge and experience and high power, which shouldn't be ignored because he's been at this far longer than I have, and he definitely has taught me a thing or two about a thing or two. And he claims his theory has worked a time or two, which I can only assume is probably true. But working against him is just little old me with some data points and testing with an Elysio 223 and a Night Force scope. I'm sorry, Jim, this one does not pass the sniff test or the litmus test or the high power hangout Mythbusters test. Moving on. Well, before we close it out, we are back to another shooter shout out. But before I get too far into this one, thank you for sending me these shout outs. I'm hoping this segment starts to catch on. I don't care if you have a list of two or three people you want to give a shout out to for something. Send them when you can. JP at HPHpodcast.com. Today's shooter shout out comes to us from the great state of Indiana. I recently met a listener online who had graciously given the podcast some love on the National Match Forum. And wouldn't you know it, he was already loaded with a shooter shout out with some great content. Our shooter shout-out today is for Emma from Indiana, who is a part of the Indiana Junior Team. She's been successfully tackling high power for the last three years and has been progressing extremely well. Trust me, I've shot against an Indiana Junior or two, and they are rugged and tough competition. Emma knocked out a beautiful 100 with 8x and rapid sit at Camp Perry during the NTI. Her dad mentioned that her rapid sitting score tied the highest score in rapid sit for the day. So I had to have a look, and holy cats, he was right. Matched only by Brandon Green and Danny Arnold, two well-known heavy hitters in the sport, so way to keep up with them. She won the sharpshooter category at last year's NRA Nationals, and sounds like she's on her way to becoming a high master in the near future. Good shooting, Emma. Keep up the work, and keep making your dad proud. Again, if you have a shooter shout-out, let me know. jp at hphpodcast.com I'll be listening. All right, my people, that's all I have time for today and all my voice can handle. If you're passing through the Midwest and looking for a good time, probably can't say that. If you're passing, if you're passing through and looking to join a match, there you go. There's a couple of dates on the horizon that I'm looking forward to. There's an EIC leg match at the Eastern Nebraska Gun Club in Louisville, Nebraska on September 9th, followed by a mid-range match on Sunday, September 10th. There's an 80-round CMP match on Sunday, September 10th at the Chief City Shooters Club in Pontiac, Illinois. The Illinois State Short Course Championship at the Illinois State Rifle Association Range in Bonfield, Illinois on Saturday, September 16th and 17th with 80-rounders on both days. And the Indiana State Championship at Camp Atterbury on September 16th and 17th. Both days are 80-rounders. If you want to weigh in on anything, say hey, pass along a shooter shout-out, or you're just bored in one event, I'm here for you. Shoot me an email at jp at hphpodcast.com. That's jp at hphpodcast.com. HPH for High Power Hangout. Good luck on all your upcoming matches, and make those last couple worthwhile before it gets cold outside. 
Remember to make every single shot count. I'll see you on the next one.